Malta today. From September 14th to November 11th, that is the dangerous season. Uh, Go out at your will. The risk is on you. It's the dangerous time to be out on the ocean from September 14th to November 11th. Sail at your risk, okay? But then from November 11th to March 10th, all navigation in the ancient times stopped on the Mediterranean. It was way too dangerous to be out on the sea. There were way too many winter storms that these ships could could not handle at all. Now, based upon what what uh, Luke tells us in Acts 20, uh, 27 and 29, we know that we are past the day of atonement or the past the day of fasting, which would have put us on October 5th. And we know it's on October 5th because Festus replaces Felix in the year 59 AD. So we know when, again, we know when Paul is leaving Caesarea to get on the boat. So we're now into October 5th, 59 A.D., well into the dangerous season of sailing. Well, a little bit about Roman ships, cargo ships. They averaged from 75 feet long to 130 feet long. They carried 75 tons to 400 tons of cargo on them. Uh, That would... 130 feet, if I've measured this correctly, would be from the front of this baptistry running out the door and right out there where Imi's car is at the very beginning of the parking lot. And it would run from just over there where the pillar hits the ground almost over to the other pillar. So that's a pretty sizable ship, right? And it's carrying over 400 tons inside of it. The other ones were shorter and carried less, of course. And somebody may say, well, Keith, I see here that it says the Alexandrian ship. And you say it's a Roman ship. Well, when it says it's the Alexandrian ship, what it means is it's part of the Roman fleet that starts in Alexandria, Egypt. And its sole purpose was, Rick, that it go from Alexandria, Egypt, up the western coast of the Mediterranean, then across the northern coast and into Rome. It would, it would have either taken food from Egypt, grain from Egypt, or grain from the Judean area all the way to Rome. Matter of fact, Rome was so dependent upon its grain and other products that it took 1,200 ships every year into its ports to supply Rome. So every day, they were dealing with five to seven ships because for the winter, you didn't get any ships. For the wintertime, your your trade is cut off. So we have hundreds of these ships going through the Mediterranean, and that's what it meant by Alexandrian. It wasn't an Egyptian ship. It was a Roman ship, but but it was leaving from Alexandria, and that's that's what its course would have been over and over again. Well, the uh, Madrag of Gians is the largest cargo ship ever found from Paul's day, actually a little before Paul's time, and it was was wrecked, it was sunk just off of France's Gauls in the top, the northern part of the Mediterranean. 
We learn from it that it was 130 feet long and 30 feet wide. It was one of the largest boats of the day that would have hauled grain. And it's an example of what Paul might have been in. Paul could have been in one of these, or he could have been in a little shorter boat of about 75 feet. Now, there were larger boats, but they were really sailing barges. And those sailing barges could have been up to 300 feet long, but they didn't go out into open ocean. They just left from one port, go into another port in perfect weather. They just would sail from one port to the other. They would never cut across open sea. Now, it's interesting, the, the, the building of these ships were done from the outside first, okay? Now, that's totally different than what we do. The Romans would build their ships, the ship hull first, okay? Using mortise and, and tenons and, and dowels and planks. And, and they would build them two holes thick, and then they would line them with lead on the inside. But then they would put the frame into it. Now, this is totally opposite of what we do today. Today, we start with the frame, turn the ship upside down, start with the frame, and then we flip it over, and then we put the siding on, right? But in Roman times, they started with the outside. And one of the problems that you have with this is that that the frame of the boat and the outside shell, that double hull, it can slip. And if it starts to slip, you're in a lot of trouble. Also, because there were no nails used, no iron nails, Tom, used, then it was susceptible to the boards actually coming off of this outer hull. So they devised this thing called frapping, right? That is to wrap the entire boat with ropes and give it more integrity. It would keep the, the boards from opening up, and it would also keep the boards onto the frame of the, of the ship, and it would give it a lot more integrity, and that's called frapping. So if you pull up to Starbucks and you say, I'll take a frap, and they come out and start wrapping ropes around you, well, they're just doing what you asked for. I advise asking for a frappuccino. Now this is a Corbida. It is, uh, would have been one of the smaller ships of the day. Uh, it's probably close to what uh, Paul was in because there are a lot more of these than they were of the 130-foot boat. This would have been somewhere a little over 75 to 100 feet long. It has a mainsail and it has a foresail, Okay. And we're going to see the foresail used in our story this morning. It also, notice, while it's sailing, this little boat in the back, the little rescue boat, it would have been in the back, okay? Now, what's interesting is that if you'll, when we get into the, to the scripture, it'll say rutters, not rudder. It'll say rutters. What they really used were these lee boards on the side. There's one on this side and there's one on the other side. And that's how you guided the ship. When you were in shallow areas, these would flex up. It could be tied up. When you were running, when you were running with an anchor in the back holding you back, they would lift these all the way up and tie them down. So then 
they would, use the, they would use the anchors that they had out and the side of the pool that they would pull on, they would direct the entire ship when they weren't going by sails. And during this time, the boat would be transferred from the back of the ship around to the front of the ship. Okay, Because the resistance and the steerage would have been from the sand anchor and not the sails. So the the lifeboat would be in the front of the boat. And we're going to see an example of that. Also, when these lee boards are tied up, okay, these lee boards are tied up because they have no purpose. You can't guide a ship with the lee boards while they're under the power of the sand anchor, okay? Only when the, only when the air is in a sail and it's being sucked along, do these boards work? Do they have any purpose whatsoever? And we'll see that later on in our story. This is an example of a sand anchor. It, most believe, historians believe, that this anchor would have been dropped, and then it would have had a board right in the middle of it, kind of like a handle on an axe, and then a rope would be tied to that, and then tied onto that rope would be a float or a big board. And that would actually set the, set the uh, anchor where it wasn't prone to dig in. And Tom, it would slow you down, but it wouldn't stop you. It was not meant to stop the boat, but slow the boat down. Because in a violent storm, if you stop the boat, and the whole force of the waves hit the back end of the boat, it could tear it to pieces. The sandbars... Of Sardis. You've always heard the sandbars of Sardis. It sounds like something out of a Pirates of Caribbean movie. And it kind of is. It's kind of a scary place if you were a first century uh, sailor. These two places are right off of the northern coast of Africa. There's one that's the greater and one that's the lesser. Both of them had the same problem. This certain rise, the ocean the, the ocean floor gets very shallow around there. But the currents are strong enough to, to cut waves and grooves into the sea floor. And, and what happens is that you have all these seabeds, these running through the ocean that you can't see. Or from ship, ship side, you know, only being 50 feet or so off of the, off of the, the sea floor, you can't see these far enough to change direction, and so you would run into them. And you think, well, that's not very bad. I, you know, so you run into that, and you're stuck. But what if there was a labyrinth of them, and you were at high tide, and it looked something like this, and you get stuck in this, and you think to yourself, how do I get out of here? That's exactly what would happen. These men would become stuck in these labyrinths of, of sandbars, and they would literally die of dehydration. Plenty of food on board, right? We might have 400 tons of grain on board, but they usually didn't take water for longer than a month. So if you got caught in one of these, this was almost certain death through slow, painful dehydration. Matter of fact, Strabo who was a contemporary with Paul, says the difficulty with both the greater 
um, and the, the little is that in many places their deep waters contain shallows. And the result is at the ebb and the flow of tides, the sailors sometimes fall into the shallows and stick there. And that the safe escape of a boat is rare. Almost everyone dies who gets stuck in one of these sandbars. The sandbars of Sardis. Well, how bad can it be in the ocean in the Mediterranean? Take a look at this. This is a 700-foot modern-day cruise ship in a winter storm in the Mediterranean. Now, if it's treating this boat that way, you can just imagine Paul's boat that had to be less than 130 feet and what was going on there. So here we go. Shipwrecks. What's our response to life's shipwrecks? What's our response to the storms in life. So Paul is in Jerusalem. That's where we left him last week. Now, they take him off the steps. They take him into a room, and they do what Romans do. We're going to beat the truth out of you. So they pull him apart, get him ready to flog him, and Paul says, wait a minute, is this... Can you do this to a Roman citizen? And the guy goes, huh? You didn't say you're a Roman citizen. They've already messed up because if you were to flog a Roman citizen, you could be flogged. It, it, without a trial, if they weren't sentenced, if they weren't guilty of anything, you could be flogged. So he runs back and he tells his commander. The commander hears about this and now they're scared because they've arrested Paul with no reason. They were just really trying to protect the guy from, from being killed from the Jews. But now they've arrested him. This is, this is a real legal issue for them because now they have a man in custody that they shouldn't have ever arrested in the first place. Well, one thing leads to another. There's a conspiracy to kill Paul, and he's taken to Caesarea to keep, to keep him safe. In Caesarea, Felix keeps him as a prisoner for over two years because he thinks he's doing a favor to the Jews. Matter of fact, it's so long that he's replaced by Festus. Festus tries to figure out what's going on. And he says, hey, I think it's unreasonable that we've got this guy uh, under arrest and there's no real charges to him. We're going to send him to Rome without charges. And Agrippa, even King Agrippa, hears it. This man could have been set free, but he's appealed to Caesar so what do we do now? We've got to send him to Caesar. It becomes later on when, when Paul gets into Rome, there are no charges there for him. But yet they have to deliver him to Caesar. So in essence, God has used the Roman government to deliver Paul free of charge to Rome to stand him in front of Caesar. All on Rome's dime. So, I'm just going to read the story to you, soak it up, just listen to it, and then we'll come back and make some points. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, the wind of hurricane force called the Northeastener swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it, and we were driven along. 
As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cod, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid that they might run aground on the sands, the sandbars of Sardis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took a, such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Then neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Not a way to influence people, okay? It's an I told you so. People don't like that, but, you know, when Paul lists off the fruits of the Spirit, tact is not one of them. So here we go. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. When you, then you would have been spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. That had to be really encouraging at this time, okay? Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lies of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will make happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, can you imagine? 14 days they're in this horrific storm. We were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took another sounding again and found it was only 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. That's the front of the boat. Now the boat's at the front, right? Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the rope that held the lifeboat, and they let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, You have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After this, he said, he took some bread, gave thanks to God, and in front of them all, then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came... They did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided they would run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders, the lee boards. Then they hoisted that foresail in the front of the ship to the wind and made for the beach. 
But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not be moved. And the stern was broken into pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. There's Roman justice for you. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and keep them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. So what can we learn from this story, from the metaphors that we can draw from this story about Paul and the storm? First, we can ask ourselves, what can I do? What can I do? What can I proactively do in most storms? There's something that we can proactively do almost in almost every storm of life to help ourselves out when we get in these circumstances. We're not always completely at the weakness of the storm. Sometimes we can do something about our condition. So first is we should run to shelter. Verse 16, look at it there. Under the shelter, under the lee of a small island called Clauda. When life's storms break in, when life's storms come, and it looks like you're headed for a shipwreck, the first thing that you ought to do is run to the shelter of the church. When it becomes overbearing and you don't think you can take it anymore, it's time to run to the saints to give you hope, to come around you and tell you, tell you, I've been there before. I've seen this storm. I've lived through this storm, and I think you can too. Sometimes you run under the shelter of the church because they can literally help you. It might be an all-hands-on-deck sort of thing where, where we have to come all together and, and help you get through it. It, it might be that, that you're emotionally have lost ground and that you need people just to come around you and encourage you. But the first thing we ought to do is run to shelter. Can I tell you in the last, in the last five years that I've been at this church, I have seen people been sheltered by the church. Refrigerators bought, stoves bought, cars bought, repairs on homes, groceries delivered, loans of money, loans of places and living quarters. All because people were running to the lead, to the shelter of the church. And I think that's one of the responsibilities of the saints. Amen? The second is build yourself up. Reinforce yourself. Look at verse 17. It says, they laid supporting cables under the girding of the ship. They frapped the ship. Sometimes we need to build ourselves up. We need to get involved Maybe it's in a support group like AA or Celebrate Recovery. Or maybe we need to take advantage of things like marriage counseling and marriage seminars. Can I tell you one of the best things that Anna and I have ever done for our marriage was go to marriage seminars? You know, you go in, you're thinking, hey, I've been in this now for 10 years. I know everything there is to know about marriage. But I'm telling you, when I walked out, I thought, ah, I can use that. I can make our relationship better with the things that I've learned. We were building ourselves up and reinforcing ourselves. Take classes on finance from 
people like Dave Ramsey and his financial piece or, or a host of other financial counseling like Credit Care Counseling of Arkansas. There's many things that we can do in life storms to help give ourselves more integrity to deal with the storm. Number three here is slow down. Verse 17 says, they let the sea anchor down this way, letting themselves be driven along. They couldn't stop it. They couldn't control the storm, but what they could do, what they could do, Don, was they could slow it down. Can I tell you, as most Americans, we try to do too much, right? We try to accomplish too much and too little of time. And I tell you, that sometimes robs us of our joy and our hope and quality living. Now, can I say this, and I'm going to say this loving and kind, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but you're either naive or arrogant if you don't think you need to slow down sometime and have some God time. If Jesus Christ, David, needed to get away and have some alone time with the Father. Who are we to think that we don't need some alone time, that we don't need to throw the sand anchor out every once in a while, slow down, and spend time with the Father? Amen? So you guys didn't agree with that one? I barely got an amen out of that. Number two, what can I do without? Sometimes when we're in life's storms there are going to be some things that if we're going to survive the storms we need to learn to live without can I tell you sometimes I feel like in the last five years I might be a semi-expert on this one there are some luxuries if you're going to get through some things in your life you're going to have to do without some things what can we do without look at verse 18 and 19 The next day, as they were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Maybe there's things that you'll have to live without to get through the storm. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's salt. Maybe it's red meat. Okay? You know, the funny thing is the doctor never says, more bacon. You need more bacon in your life. It's always more carrots and broccoli. Maybe we need to stop smoking. Maybe we need to stop overeating. Maybe we need to quit having financial indulgences like comfort shopping. Maybe we need to sell a car. Maybe we need to move to another location in a smaller house or a place that's easier to pay for. Maybe we need to give up golfing or some type of personal recreation so we can spend more time with the family. Often letting go of things means letting go of the non-essentials so you can hold on to the essentials of life. Can I give you some wisdom here? Sometimes less is more sometimes a simpler life means a greater life of joy 
And I have to be reminded of that constantly. There's a little Bolivian lady that whips me out clean sometimes because I get caught up into putting too much into my life and thinking I have to have things. Number three, where can I put my hope? This is the biggie, Mary. If, if Bill doesn't get anything out of this sermon at all, you make sure on the way home he remembers this one. Where can I put my hope? Where does your hope come from? Verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Have you ever been there? These maritime sailors, they went by the stars and the sun to navigate. They've totally lost their way. They've totally lost their bearings. They don't know if they're yards from the sandbar or miles from the sandbar. It's hanging over them. The storm is hanging over them. The disaster is hanging over them. They know it's coming. They don't know what to do, and they've given up all hope. I can tell you, I, I've been there. It's been so bad for me before in my life that I would rehearse suicide just so I could think about what it would be like to get out of the stress I was in. I think that's where these men were. They just wanted it to end. It had been going on for so long that they had just given up all hope. Have you been there? Because I'm telling you, the thing that we have to remember the most are the promises of God when it gets that bad. Last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and to whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. You see, Paul now has hope. He remembers his hope. He remembers what he's there for and what he's going to do, and he has purpose. And when life storms billow in on you and tumble in on you and have you completely turned upside down and you've completely lost your way and you don't know which way you're going and you don't know when the disaster is actually going to calm down and fall on you, at those times, that's when we really need to remember God's promises. I will never forsake you or abandon you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after cannot do more than that. Christ is reminding you, don't be afraid. Worst they can do, Tanya, is kill you. And then after they kill you, so you're in heaven. So you spend eternity with the Father. Quit fearing the here and now, David, because it's just the here and now, because the after is better. If this is the meal, that's the dessert. It's easy to forget that, though, while you're in the middle of the storm. I think it's interesting that Paul writes the next 
Paul writes the next verse after this storm, while he's in prison. It's the third from the last book that he writes, or the last letter that he writes. He's already went through the storm. Johnny, now he has the experience of a shipwreck behind him. And he writes these words to the Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lance, for me to live with you, Paul's saying, is to, is to be Christ and to break Christ into the world and, and to bring more people to Christ and to bring us into living for Christ and to bringing other people's, people along with us. But even better than that, if I die, I get to spend eternity with my Savior. If I die, it's going to be better off. It's going to be gain because then I get to live with the Father and the Son. Folks, the storm is coming. The storm is on its way. You're either just out of one barb or you're getting ready to go in one because that's life, right? It's always that way. Let's bow. Dear Heavenly Lord, when life's storm creeps in, when the billows roll, help us to put our hope in you. Help us to remember that our goal in life is not to be busy, but our goal in life is to glorify you and serve mankind. Our goal in life is to know you and to be Christ to others. Lord, I pray that for anyone who's going through life's storm today, that, that they seek shelter in the church and that they remember your promises. Help us to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.